The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, I want you to, to think um, about a time <clears throat> when you were discouraged. And some of you are like, well, that wasn't hard. I woke up discouraged, you know. I'm discouraged right now. And if that's the case, man, I'm, I am so glad that you're here. Um, it's, discouragement is, is a thing that comes in a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different ways. There's a lot of things going on right now that create and contribute to uh, discouragement. You know, COVID, <laughs> increasing numbers, uh, talk about mask mandates and all that stuff again, or, or a wayward child. Um, a difficult season of parenting that, that maybe doesn't seem so much like a season so much as this is just going to be your life. <laughs> um, what we see and anticipate in Afghanistan may be just cause for discouragement in some of you. The earthquake in, in Haiti, uh, church, you know, we, we talked about this last week, but conflict in the church and changing relationships in, in the church, people leaving the church, stepping back from the church, uh, distancing themselves from the church or changing how they think about the, the church. Listen, when, when your friends are in that space, it can be massively discouraging. And speaking of friends, another thing that's discouraging right now in, in our world is like just it, COVID kind of has us in this place. I don't know if you've felt this at all, where you're trying to figure out like, hey, what, who are my friends? <laughs> and that's kind of a weird, can be a discouraging thing where when, when for so long, so, so many of the things that brought us together naturally in our friendships and relationships were taken away. And now we don't have those to rely on for the fostering of our friendships. It's easy and it can be discouraging to step back and say, do we even have any friends? Um, when you get the text, like I did this last week, from a uh, brother in Christ here in our church that one of our old friends from college at the age of 40 lost his battle to cancer, leaving behind a young wife and a young child. It's discouraging. And those things are all external, you know. Um, it happens internally, too. When you examine your own life and you, you have to come to grips with the slowness of your own sanctification, when you sin that same old sin again, when you lose your temper again, when, 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 when you, you know, get into that same old argument that you swore you were not going to get into, but you get into it again, when you spiral again, when, when you lust or are filled with envy or greed again, it can be and very often is discouraging. See, the question isn't, will you ever get discouraged? We all get discouraged. <laughs> uh, We have all been or are right now or will one day become discouraged. Just being a Christian doesn't guard you from that, okay? Uh, Why are you cast down, oh, my soul, the psalmist sings. And I love that about Christianity. Um, You see, Christianity is honest enough to admit that life can be incredibly discouraging. And, And we, as Christians, are to be honest enough to admit when we're struggling, and we can. You don't, have to, you don't have to put on a happy face around here. We embrace the mess. It's one of our core values, you know. We, you don't have to pretend like everything is fine when, when nothing is. This life, even the Christian life, has been, perhaps is right now, or you will one day find to be discouraging. Not all the time. Right? It, it comes and goes, but it does come. And before it goes, it's hard. It's hard. And what I want us to see in, in Zechariah this morning, Old Testament prophet of Zechariah, the second to last minor prophet we're looking at this summer, is, is the antidote. I want you to see the antidote to discouragement. Something that helps it go after a little while when it comes. Right? Not right away. Again, this isn't an attempt to, to minimize discouragement or minimize pain or, or grief. But as Christians, we, we also don't, we don't wallow there forever. In fact, even while we're there, <laughs> we have hope. Even in the midst of discouragement, we have hope. What we're going to see in Zechariah this morning is that the, the antidote to discouragement is the gospel. That's the antidote. It's the, it's the gospel. You see, Zechariah, he's prophesying a time where God's people were discouraged. It's around the same time of, of Haggai, whom we looked at last week. It's, it's post-exile. Okay, we're about the year 520 B.C. They're back in the land, and yet they're, the longer they're back in the land, 
the more discouraged they grow. Their, their earlier enthusiasm had waned. Um, the, the excitement of returning had, had worn off, and now they're settling into a life that was hard. They're, they're looking around, and, and they're thinking, you know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be like. You know, you know they're, they're having that crisis that most of us hit sometime in our 30s where we look around our life and we sort of ask, is this it? <laughs> when they evaluate their life, the conclusion they drew, according to chapter 4, verse 10, is that theirs was a day of small things. It was all really ordinary. God wasn't working in the grandiose ways that they thought he would. All of the grand promises of restoration and, and rebuilding and making Israel great again, it all kind of lost their luster by now, you know? The hype of returning had worn off. They, they were struggling financially. Taxes were high. They, they were struggling politically. They, they still had enemies all around them. They were even struggling socially. They, they were socially divided. Not everyone wanted to return to Babylon. Some of them wanted to stay. Listen to how one commentator sums it up. He says, not surprisingly, this constellation of problems, social, economic, and political, produced cynicism and discouragement among the people. In sum, all indications are, therefore, that life in Judah was difficult as people live daily in the painful contrast between the glories of the past and the humiliation of the present, very little of what the returnees had eagerly expected had been realized. I wonder how many of us today resonate with the first line of, of that sentence, that, 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 that paragraph. I wonder if it describes you. Does the constellation of, of problems, social Economic, political, I'll add ecclesiastical, right? The, the, the church has the constellation of problems from the last couple of years. Has it produced cynicism and discouragement in you at all? If so, the, the book of Zechariah is for you today. Which means it's, it's really, it's for all of us at some point in our life, right? New Christian, the, the day will come, new Christian, if it hasn't already, when you'll need this. Old Christian, I don't have to tell you, you probably tell me, you know. It, it, the day will come and go and come again and go and then it'll come again and go where we need this. And non-Christian, you're going to need something. Maybe you're looking for that something this morning and, and what I would want you to hear is that the, the, the antidote, you, you need, the, the antidote that you need when seasons of discouragement come, the only antidote that goes deep enough is the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Now, Zechariah is a notoriously difficult book of the Bible. Can I get an amen? Anybody try to read it this week? Holy moly, are you? It is, it is difficult. It's the longest of all the minor prophets, um, this morning is going to feel a little different than last week, where I think we literally hit every single verse in the book of Haggai. Uh, it's also filled with, with all kinds of apocalyptic imagery. It's the, it's the revelation of the Old Testament, okay? And, and if you've ever read or tried to make sense of the book of Revelation, you know what I'm talking about, you know? Uh, it's hard. It's, it's confusing. There's parts where you read, and you'll just stop reading, and you'll be like, I, I, have, I have no idea. You know, I have no idea what's going on right here. And in full confession, I feel that way about some of it, too. Okay? Um, but that doesn't stop us from searching it. It doesn't stop us from steeping in it because there is gold to be mined here. It's God's word. And as Paul reminds us in the New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, including the book of Zechariah. In fact, Zechariah is one of the Old Testament books that is most frequently quoted in the New Testament, which means it is a really important book of the Bible. And all I want to do this morning is sort of give you some help to kind of dig deeper into it yourself. I want to introduce you to the book of Zechariah and, and, and show you how it shows us that the antidote to discouragement is the gospel and then set you loose, really, to, to go deeper on your own. 
few resources that I want to point you to in order to be able to do that after this sermon. Number one is the ESV Study Bible. Okay, I have used this resource more than any other resource in preparing sermons for this series. It is stellar on the Minor Prophets. It's really, really good. Um, And the study notes help you navigate through, help you figure out what's going on. That's the first one that I would commend to you. Number two is a little book that I bought very early on in my walk with Jesus called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. It's by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. If if you're newer to the Bible, um, this is a fantastic and accessible little book that will just walk you through each book of the Bible, including Zechariah, from an extremely high level. Okay, Uh, I pulled it down, found it really helpful this week when trying to sort out what on earth is going on in Zechariah, you know? And in fact, we'll lean on that a little bit this morning. And number three is, is a book called Longing for God in an Age of Discouragement. And the subtitle is The Gospel According to Zechariah. It's a commentary on Zechariah. It's by Brian Gregory, and it's a, it's a more in-depth look at, at this theme that emerges as we really dig in and understand Zechariah. I haven't read the whole thing. Um, But it's on my desk now to read over the next couple months or so because I myself am someone who longs for God in an age of discouragement, aren't you? Now, there's enough in Zechariah to fuel your devotional life for at least the rest of the year, okay? We're going to fly over it this morning and glean from the top. Now, the best way to begin understanding Zechariah is to first see how it's built. And, And Zechariah is built largely... Ready for it? With eight visions, two sermons, and two oracles. It looks like this. Put that up there. Yeah. Pretty straightforward, right? No. Some of you are like, boy, that's really discouraging, actually. (laughs) Uh, Listen, by taking each section and just learning sort of what's going on from a high level in each section, you become equipped to go back and sit in each section a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper, all right? So let's just walk through this this morning. Again, gleaning, gleaning really from the top, but Lord willing, equipping you to go deeper and along the way seeing how the antidote to discouragement is the gospel. We start with the introduction. It's what Brad just read. Zoom in here with me on, on verse 3. Zechariah 1, verse 3. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. This, listen, this is a grand and overarching theme in Zechariah. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me. Come back to me. Walk faithful with me. Live in obedience to me. Devote yourselves to me. Surrender to me, and I will return to you. I will be with you. I will guide you. I will protect you. I will be victorious for you. I will never leave you. I will take care of you. This is a word not just for Zechariah's day, but for ours. If you're not a Christian, right, God says, return to me. Return to me from your ways and turn to me. I will return to you, he says. And notice here, God doesn't say, he doesn't say return to me and I'll think about returning to you. You know, he doesn't say, return to me, eh, maybe, may, you know, depends on how I'm feeling, maybe I'll return to you. He, he doesn't say, return to me and, and work really, really hard and never screw up ever, ever again and I'll return to you. No, the promise is much more simple. Return to me and I will return to you. If you're a Christian, this is a word for you too. Every day we we return to the Lord, don't we? I mean, we wake up, we either turn in on ourselves or we turn on the news or we turn to Jesus. (laughs) This is why James in the New Testament, writing to Christians to encourage them, he, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to him. Like that that's how you experience God. Is by drawing near to him, returning to him. You'll never find him by running away from him. You'll never find him by ignoring his word or distancing yourself from his people. He's not hiding there. Return to me, and I will return to you. This is a grand overarching theme in Zechariah. But but actually, that's not even saying it quite correctly. Um, because the, the, the more grand, the more overarching theme is actually more simply, 
I will return to you. And the eight visions are all about that. I want to skim through them just to kind of give you a taste. Again, you can put on the scuba gear and dive deep later, but I just want to kind of give you a a taste here. Let's summarize these a little bit, but keep that grand overarching theme in mind. I will return to you. Vision number one, we've got these horsemen, right? And God's return to Jerusalem. It's in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. You can probably see it set apart in your copy of God's word. The big idea here is Yahweh is returning to Jerusalem. And so the people must not rest, but rather must rebuild the temple. Kind of that theme we looked at last week. And, and don't try to write all this stuff down. Okay, I'm going to post all this. We're going to go through a lot of stuff on the screen. I'll, I'll post that this afternoon. But look at Zechariah 1, verse 16. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What a word of encouragement to God's discouraged people. I will return to you, he says, with mercy and prosperity and comfort. You could dig deeper and and spend a a whole week devotionally meditating on what God has to say in this first vision and hearing what he says to you through it. I will return to you. Vision number two, the four horns that are that are destroyed. The big idea here is that the days of the nations that are responsible for the exile, those days are over. But the, the four horns, that, we're not sure. You know, they could be the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and possibly Greece, you know, looking, looking prophetically forward into the future, or four could just be a symbol for all, okay? Either way, God is saying, all of your enemies are going to be cast down. <laughs> all of them. Vision three, Jerusalem cannot be measured. It's the return of prosperity. And the big idea here is Yahweh will return. Jerusalem will become great. He will be their protector. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. You'll be the apple of my eye, he says in verse 8. God, the sovereign one, will return and dwell in Zion. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. He will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I will return to you, God says. I will. I will. We're actually going to skip visions uh, 4 and 5 for a minute here. We'll come back to them, and I'll tell you why. But vision 6, we got this flying scroll, right? And this banishment from Judah, the big idea there is that, that the evil that persists in Judah will be banished from the land. Vision 7, you got the woman in the basket. This is the strangest of the strange visions, just to kind of let you know on that one. Uh, wickedness, though, is exiled to Babylon. That's part of what we see here. The, the people will return from exile. Babylon has been overthrown. The temple will be rebuilt. And so the question is, what happens to wickedness? It's actually exiled. Wickedness is. Vision 8, the four chariots. Here we have God at rest and a crown for Joshua. The big idea here is that the final vision is similar to the first vision and that they present, they both present four horses going throughout the earth and returning to report peace. In the first vision, it was the peace of the self-righteous nations. But here in the eighth, the peace is the peace that comes following the arrival of the Messiah, the coming one. See, we're presented in the Old Testament book of Zechariah with this messianic figure. 
Look at chapter 6, actually, with me, beginning in uh, verse 11. We read, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. The branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, okay? But there is significant, symbolic, prophetic action happening right here, okay? Joshua, the high priest, is being crowned. You don't normally crown priests, do you? You you crown kings. And what we're being told here is that this coming one, okay, the branch, this messianic figure, is going to be both priest and king. He will build the temple. Who's the temple on this side of the coming Messiah? We are. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will return to you, says the Lord. In this sense, with our New Testament glasses on, the return was far more than what they bargained for. God himself would come in the flesh, the branch, Jesus. He he would be both priest and king. The the sovereign and sympathetic one, ruling and yet comforting, stomping down the enemies and yet Loving with care. And the reason I skipped visions four and five earlier is because they sort of jump ahead to this. Okay, in fact, scholars see a, a chiastic structure in the eight visions. That's a, that's a fancy word for saying that visions four and five are, are in the middle here. The, the real big idea of all these eight visions is, is there. It's in visions four and five. What do we see there? Well, in vision four, we have the reinstatement of the high priest. This priestly figure who prefigures Jesus. Turn back to chapter 3. In verse 3 of chapter 3 we read, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And here we have the high priest Joshua, the the same figure who would be symbolically, prophetically crowned in the eighth vision. Here we see him symbolically, prophetically covered with the filth of the people and cleansed. In verse 8 of chapter 3, we read, Behold, I'm, I'm bringing, I bring my servant the branch. In verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Our same figure, church, is now priest, king, and savior. Our filth was placed upon him, and it's been taken away. That's true of you if you belong to Jesus. All of your filth... All of your sin, all your guilt, all of your shame, he takes it all on and he takes it away through his sacrifice on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. It's been taken away. That's good news. And in vision five, the the lampstand and the olive trees, we got God's renewing spirit in his presence. The big idea here is God's everlasting presence being restored through his temple. His everlasting presence, his continual presence, which is an important presence when we consider it is in this vision as well. We're told of God's Old Testament people despising the day of small things. That's chapter 4, verse 10. If we're honest, isn't that one of the times that we grow most discouraged? When the daily grind of life just keeps grinding and grinding and grinding, or COVID just keeps going on and on and on, or the national news cycle relaying horrifying true events throughout the world just keeps coming and coming and coming. When you wake up and you go to work and you come home and you do it again, 
And you wake up and you go to work and you come home and do it again and again and again. And sure, there's some stuff in there that breaks it up, but by and large, it feels as though you're trapped up and swept along with the current of life and the day of small things. (laughs) To God's people, back in Zechariah's day, who were feeling that way, despising the day of small things, cynical and discouraged, God spoke to them and said, I will return to you. I will be with you. Never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm with you even in the small things. In some reform, friends, these eight visions give us this picture of the entire world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest, king, savior. And notice how it works. Remember the beginning? Return to me. And I will return to you. But what have the, what's the vast majority of these eight visions been about? Simply about God returning to his people. God returning to them. In other words, it's not up to God's people to do anything to pull this off. God doesn't tell Zechariah to do much of anything here besides know, see, listen. Instead, he gives them a beautiful vision of his reign and his rule and tells them, hey, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in chapter four, verse five. That's how it comes to be. That brings us to chapters seven and eight and the two sermons, which could literally be two sermons, but since we only got one, I'm trying to cover the rest of the book too. We're just going to give them to a very high level of summary form. But sermon one is all about looking back. It puts theological spectacles on and interprets their history and exile through the lens of their disobedience. That's sermon one. It's chapter seven. Sermon two in chapter eight is, is all about then looking forward, namely, He will return to them. Look at chapter 8, verse 1 with me. It says, The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the, the holy mountain, Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. Just, in, just sitting and enjoying. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets because it is a place marked of security and safety. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This is the beautiful vision that God gives to his people, some of which is fulfilled in their day, right? much of which awaited a greater fulfillment, and even more that awaits a final fulfillment yet to come. And yet, it was a word of encouragement to God's discouraged people. He wasn't done with them. He's still writing their story. And they're a part of it. And so he says to them, beginning in in verse 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of those people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. Sounds a lot like Haggai from last week. And I will cause the remnant of those people to possess all these things. 
And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Fear not. He, he's gone from motivating them here with the vision and calling them to action. Very similar to Haggai. Be strong. Build the temple. You will be a blessing. My covenant promises will extend through you. Don't be afraid. I have returned to you. Don't be discouraged. I'm still writing your story. Perhaps that's what you need to hear this morning in your discouragement. Don't be afraid. I have returned to you. Don't be discouraged. Still writing the story. And as you live that out, God says to his people, as you take your place in my story, there's some things that I actually do have for you to do. Verse 16. These are the things. What things? Well, here they are. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Speak the truth. Boy, what a fantastic exhortation for us to hear when we're discouraged. Speak the truth to one another. Remind them of what is true. Which implies receiving truth spoken from one another as well, doesn't it? I need that. You need that. And if you ever convince yourself that you don't need that, you are trending, my friend, in a very dangerous direction. When we're discouraged, we need brothers and sisters who will speak gospel truth to us. It's one of the reasons to be a part of the church. You're going to need that. Rendering your gates, he adds, judgments that are true and make for peace, making true and sound decisions that affect others and lead not to strife but to peace. The Apostle Paul would say, as much as possible, be at peace with all men. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Boy, that compounds discouragement. Isn't it true that when we get discouraged, we can suddenly begin to think the worst of others? Don't do that, he says. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And as you do that, as you live that out, taking your place in my story, he returns to the beautiful vision. Chapter 8, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. <laughs> Invite each other to church. Many peoples and strong nations have come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is God's way of saying, remember that promise I made to Abraham? It's still good. God is going to reach the nations through you. Oh, discouraged remnant of God's people. This is a beautiful vision that God gives his people. Again, some of which is fulfilled in their day, much of which awaited a greater fulfillment, and even more that awaits a final fulfillment to come. Their return from exile had not lived up to their expectations, they were discouraged. But, but into all of that, God sent Zechariah to be an encouragement. And listen, just to clarify, okay, the, the rebuilding of the temple here in the Old Testament in Zechariah's day, it was a prelude to the final restoration and renewal of his people in the last days. Again, some of this is going to be fulfilled in their day. Much awaits a greater fulfillment, some even a greater fulfillment still. That's actually a jagged pill for us to swallow, isn't it? It was for them, it is for us. We don't typically like to hear stuff like that. You know, it's like, well, is that good news? 
You know, because we want what we want. We want it now. But if we listen to the Bible, God says, I am doing a work that's bigger than you. (laughs) It's not all about you. I'm doing a work that's bigger than you. It's bigger than your life. Hey, it's probably bigger than your lifetime. And you're a part of that, but you're not going to see all of it until much later. That may sound discouraging to you this morning, but not if we focus on the beautiful vision. Not if we focus on, on the, if you lift your eyes, as Zechariah is encouraging us to do, to look beyond what we can see to what will come. What will come? Well, on the horizon for them was the branch, the priest, king, savior. That leads us into chapter 9 and through 14, the rest of the book, which makes up these two oracles, right? And both of these oracles point forward to this coming one, the priest, king, savior. We read in Zechariah 9, for example, perhaps the most famous quotation from the book that shows up in the New Testament on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be, battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The king is coming. And he will bring peace to the nations. But he's not like other kings. He comes humbly. He's the priest king, remember? Remember the picture of Joshua, the priest king, being crowned back in chapter 6? That's the picture of the coming one. And we keep reading on into the second oracle. In chapter 12, we learn something more of this coming one, that he'd be pierced. That he would die. That's a strange way to encourage people, isn't it? By telling them their coming king would die? Look at chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. He's pierced. But the piercing isn't purposeless. Chapter 1 of, or verse 1 of chapter 13 makes that clear. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Pierced in a fountain. Putting those two together, isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do? In fact, Isaiah pulls them together for us. We don't have to do this work. Isaiah does it for us in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, what's the word? Pierced for our transgressions. That's the same language as Zechariah. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The fountain. All weak like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the coming one, the iniquity of us all. You know, we have a song that we sing about Zechariah 13, verse 1. We haven't sung it for a little bit, but we have this song. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose what? All of their guilty stains. Out in western Nebraska on the Niobrara River, most people, maybe if you've been out there, you're familiar with Smith Falls. My wife's family's been going out there for years, so they know all the secret spots. And if you go down the river a little ways from Smith Falls, there's another falls. And her family affectionately calls it the Pounder. 
right? And it's this fountain, it's this, it's this waterfall, and you, you can get underneath it, right? And the water's just, it's just, co- and it's freezing cold because it's spring water, right? And it's just coming over you and pounding. So the, the, the fun thing to do on a hot day on the river is to park your little uh, tubes, right? And get out, walk up the little stream. It's 100 yards or so off, and it's, I think it's called Cedar Falls, actually, um, but they call it the pounder. And, and the, the fun part of the family vacation trip, right, is to see who can stay under the pounder the longest, it's freezing. I, mean, I got under there this last summer, and I was just like, ah! I lasted like three seconds. My brother-in-law won, in case you were wondering. He lasted there for like a minute. This is the vision, though, that I have. This is the picture that I have of this, this flood, this, this fountain that we are under as God's people, removing all of our guilty stains. This is good news. It's good news that God spoke to his discouraged people. It's meant to be the antidote to their discouragement. The priest king savior would, become, would, would, would come. Return to me, he says. I will return to you. But then there's even greater good news. I mean, there is good news here that would span even past the coming Messiah to what we know as the second coming. This is prefigured in the second oracle in chapter 14, verse 1. In fact, turn there. Now, in your Bible, to Zechariah chapter 14, this one's not on the screen because I want to make sure you take it home with you. Zechariah 14, verse 1. We read this. starts a little dark just to warn you. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. This is a, sort of a, this grave picture of the end. Remember, it's, it's apocalyptic. It's a vision. Symbolic in some way. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the mountain of olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. And the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come. And all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. L- listen, this is the closest thing to Revelation 21 that we have in the Bible. A new Jerusalem. If you read over to the end of chapter 14, it speaks of holiness that is so expansive, so immersive, that even the pots and pans will be considered holy. This is a vision that we have in the scriptures from the day when Christ Jesus, our Lord, comes again. Return to me, he says. I will return to you. This is the gospel. And this is the antidote to your discouragement. See, when you and I get in the place of discouragement, what we need to be reminded of is that Christ has come, and he's coming again. He has returned, 
and he will return. We need to be reminded that all we, like sheep, have gone astray, that we are sinful, deserving of his judgment and wrath, and he came for us. The priest king savior did. He came for you. He was pierced for your transgressions. The fountain has been opened. And when you turn to him, when you return to him, you are cleansed. Your guilty stains are gone. Hear that when you're discouraged. Hear it right now if you're discouraged. Remember chapter 8, verse 16, in the exhortation to speak truth to one another? This is a truth that we never stop needing to hear. If you're looking around your life this morning as a Christian, if you're looking around at the, the slowness of your sanctification, if you have come in here feeling like a fake failure or fraud because you sinned again in the same ways, you came in here in the same way this, as you did last week feeling like a fake failure or fraud, hear the good news. Hear the gospel. The antidote. You have been cleansed. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. And I know it doesn't always feel like it. That's very likely the enemy trying to cause you to not believe the gospel. But hear the word of God instead. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zip. Nada. No condemnation. You've been cleansed. And so lift your head. Chin up. And that doesn't mean you're perfect now. It doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But trust and obey. He sent his spirit. He lives in you to empower you for this. Trust and obey. And when you sin again, you have a fountain. It hasn't run out. In fact, if you belong to Jesus, you haven't run out. You're still under the pounder. You remain under the pounder in Christ. You never get out from underneath the pounder in Christ. His grace and his mercy and his no condemnation and forgiveness just keeps pouring over you and over you and over you. And you just go, ah! It's good news. It's the gospel. It doesn't stop there, does it? Because Jesus didn't stop there. He, isn't just, he wasn't just pierced for us. He rose for us. Death couldn't conquer him. He conquered death. He's alive and he sits at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling. Our priest, king, savior does. Waiting, orchestrating, carrying out his plan. My friends, Jesus didn't just come. He's coming again. He's coming again, which means this world is not all that there is. We live in a time where everyone around us wants to convince us this is it. And so if this is it, boy, we better make the most of it. I mean, Squeeze everything out, foam, all, all the applications of that, right? There is coming a day when all of this will pass away. Complete peace will pervade the earth. Behold, a day is coming, Zechariah sins. All sin everywhere is going to be gone, forever gone. God's holiness, God's holiness is going to be so expansive that even the frying pan that you cooked your eggs on this morning is going to be considered holy. That's pretty holy. That's pretty expansive, you know? We will dwell in complete safety, complete security, in the presence of our perfect king in the new Jerusalem. There will be no more sin. No more pain. No more sickness. No more tears. No more death. Hey, listen. No more COVID. No more Taliban. No more earthquakes or injustice, no more racism, no more church conflict. <laughs> this is our hope. This is our hope in the midst of discouragement. Listen, everything that's going on in the world and in your life right now, none of it's catching Jesus off guard. You know, Jesus isn't sitting on the throne going, shoot, Delta variant? Oh, didn't see that one coming. Oh, he's using it all. He is the perfect priest, king, savior, and he is using it all, church conflict and all, carrying out his perfect sovereign plan and will. A plan that is bigger than you in your life and may very well be bigger than your lifetime. But he will return. And when he does, 
he's going to bring the holy ones with him. (laughs) I mean, that's Zechariah 14, verse 5. All your loved ones who belong to Christ will all be together again. You yourself may be included in that group should your time on this earth expire before he returns, but he will return. And if you belong to Christ, you will see that day. You will. You'll either be here when he gets back, or he's bringing you with him. This is our hope. This is the antidote for your discouragement. It's a gospel that goes beyond your sins are forgiven to include your Savior is coming again. He's coming. He's come and he's with us, but he's coming again. Do not despise the day of small things, church. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust and obey him. Return to him. He will return to you. Let's pray. Father, help us now to steep ourselves in the encouragement that we find in Zechariah. Lift our heads. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our hope. Strengthen the discouraged in this room this morning. Oh God, by your truth and by your spirit inside them, strengthen them. Encourage them. Use us to be an encouragement to one another. Speaking your encouraging gospel truth to one another. Prepare all of us, Lord, all the more for seasons of discouragement. That when they come, we'd have the antidote that helps them go. We'd have the antidote to discouragement, the gospel of Jesus, even in the midst of discouragement. Because our hope is in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.